It's Tuesday morning, and I can hear Republic Services truck doing its usual curbside recycling rounds around the neighborhood. But in a few months, Tuesday mornings may go very quiet. Republic Services may not send the trucks to our neighborhood anymore. The idea of not having a curbside recycling program scares me. You are asking why would Republic Services stop servicing your neighborhood? Because China says so. For years, the garbage man has collected our recyclables curbside, often at a loss, because he made good money reselling a lot of the material overseas, especially to China. But now China has an air pollution problem, so it has stopped buying things like our old cardboard boxes, and the value of those commodities have plummeted from about two hundred dollars a ton to half that. The fear of China is not limited to my neighborhood curbside recycling program. In light of the U.S. and China tariffs and trade wars or negotiations, and the rapid fall of the stock prices of the Chinese companies in the past few months, a drift is shaping in the stock market community. China is not doing well. It's slowing. It's got a lot of challenges. I think this is actually a pretty good opportunity to get involved in some of these Chinese things. Which one of these two? Point of views are right, and as stock market investors, what should we do? Should we hold on to our Chinese stocks? Should we double down and start investing even more, or should we sell them all off? From Stockard.io, this is Renegade Investors, the show that rebels against the conventional wisdom of investing. We are Hoda and Arash, your hosts and the co-founders of Stockard. The conversation on this show is not investment advice. The hosts and their guests may or may not have invested in the companies we discuss. Don't make investment decisions solely based on what you hear on this show. Hey, podcast listeners! This is Hoda, co-founder and CEO of Stockard, and the host of this episode of Renegade Investors podcast. China and whether to invest in China. Is a very complex topic. As renegade investors, we usually want to rebel against what we see and hear on the surface, and we would want to take the news and financial media just for their entertainment value. And also, we want to avoid letting our emotions and maybe our political preferences to cloud our judgments when it comes to making good and long-term investment decisions. All that said is easier than done. As I embarked on doing research for this episode of the Renegade Investors podcast, something about three weeks ago, I found it very difficult to get to the bottom of the truth when it comes to things like trade wars and their impact on the Chinese economy, and consequently on Chinese stocks. Of course, when we come across a complex topic such as should we invest in China or not, the best way to tackle such question is to figuratively peel the onion. Layer by layer to the core of the issue, and that's what we've done in this episode. We can answer this complex question by breaking down the complexity into smaller pieces. So the question of whether to invest in China or not can be broken down into a few pieces. First of all, why do we even want to invest in China? And can China continue to grow as fast as it used to, or at least faster than the rest of the world, so that it can give us a chance to outperform the market, such as the U.S. market? And finally, whether there are things in the world, such as U.S. and China trade wars and tariff negotiations, or anything else in the world that can prevent China 
to grow further or at least grow as fast as we would hope so. Well, sure. I mean, it's uh, easy to get started. 730 million uh, internet users, uh, 40% of global retail e-commerce, uh, 11x uh, mobile payments versus the United States and China, China wow. versus US, uh, a third of the global unicorns. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, whether we're talking about uh, transactions, uh, technology or money, uh, you know, China really stands out. And- that was the voice of Jonathan Wetzel at Fortune Magazine Conference in 2017. Jonathan is a senior partner of McKinsey & Company with a focus on the Chinese market and economy. What he said about China is extremely impressive. Looking at the past 20-25 years, China grew much faster than the rest of the world and has become an economic superpower. Money, of course, follows where growth is, but the country's growth rate measured by GDP growth is slowing down. Based on International Monetary Fund's forecast, China's growth rate is slowing down from more than 10% growth rate in 2010 to an expected growth rate of a little bit more than 5% in 2022. So what China has achieved so far is not as important as how far the country can go and grow. Here's what Jonathan said about the future of China. Uh, we're, we're pretty bullish on that. I mean, there's a couple of things, two things. First of all, I, we are still in the great early days of the Chinese middle class income boom. Yep. So, you know, we've got a lot more, a lot more people getting a lot more rich over the next decade or two. Uh, which is great. In 2012, 54% of the Chinese urban households were considered mass middle class. But by 2022, thanks to the growing number of higher paying high-tech and service industry jobs, 54% will be classified as upper middle class. So think about it. Half of the Chinese urban population are expected to double their income by 2022. That means 54% of the Chinese urban households can afford double the stuff they could have afforded back in 2012. That by itself is a gigantic economic growth engine that most developed countries simply don't have access to. Uh, and of course, uh, we've got all of the catch-up to do on the industry side. I mean, the top electronic retailers in China, the top five account for something like 20% of market share, whereas in the U.S., the top five account for 70 yeah. Uh, it just shows you kind of how early and how fragmented uh, most Chinese industries are. So it's both things. It's more demand, uh, lots of it, and more, uh, more, more catch up and more efficiency uh, on the supply side. So both of those things turn into, uh, turn into lots of lots of opportunities. Okay, so based on what Jonathan is saying, there's more people that are becoming rich, more people can afford more stuff, and also there's opportunity on the efficiency side of the Chinese economy to increase the amount of spending within the economy. In pure economic terms, growth comes from spending and increase in productivity. Spending more is pretty straightforward. If spend is no problem, let's dig deep into whether China has any opportunity to increase its productivity too. So what does productivity mean? It means that for every dollar that is being spent within the economy or invested within the economy, whether the Chinese can increase the return that they can get from that investments. I always assume at some point there's going to be another innovation. This time, though, I think it's not going to be from this country. It's going to be from China. Talking about a bigger secular shift, I think China is leading the way in innovation. I've said this time and again. I think they are investing in computer science. I think they are investing in innovation. I think they are investing in startups. 
And I think that's who we're going to see the challenges from in terms of who controls the next Internet age of, of automation, AI, transportation, all kinds of things that are critical, major issues. I think China is the, so, is the competition. That interesting argument is by Recode's editor and co-founder, Kara Susher, in an interview with Squawk Alley. The question is, why China making all those investments? What is the Chinese plan? And what does that have to do with the increase of productivity in the Chinese economy? If you look at the past 20, 25 years again, China's growth was purely created by industrial production. In the past few years, though, the country is changing gear to focus on high productivity service industry. You might have heard of Made in China 2025 program. This is a government strategic plan to position China as the world's technological superpower across 10 strategic industries, including IT, aviation, rail, new energy vehicles, and agricultural machineries. This is such an important plan that recently the United States White House has published a report on China's economic plan to dominate the world. Here's how that report starts. But I come before you today because the American people deserve to know that as we speak, Beijing is employing a whole-of-government approach using political, economic, and military tools as well as propaganda to advance... The Chinese government is implementing a comprehensive long-term industrial strategy to ensure its global dominance. Beijing's ultimate goal is for domestic companies to replace foreign companies as designers and manufacturers of key technology and products, first at home and then abroad. In the eyes of United States White House, there is no doubt that China wants to be self-sufficient in the development of such high-value technologies internally and then become the leader in those industries globally. If you read through Made in China 2025 program as we did, you come across very aggressive goals. Now, through the Made in China 2025 plan, the Communist Party has set its sights on controlling 90% of the world's most advanced industries, including robotics, biotechnology, and artificial In several of those high-value-add industries, China is planning to dominate the domestic market. For example, in robotics, they plan to own up to 70% share of the domestic market, That is definitely an aggressive plan. Regardless of what you think of China's government in purity from an investing point of view, what China is trying to achieve is good. As a matter of fact, it is very good for individual investors in China. China has a massive population that is growing and going to consume more stuff. And the government has a strategic plan to dominate the world. And it has the money to do so. If this was a startup in Silicon Valley, we would have all invested in it today. All good long-term investments have a world-dominating vision and have found the money to fund it. They've also have proved that they can execute on that plan. China has done all three. So as long-term stock market investors, we should be extremely happy if China is trying to become a leader in the world because it means we can invest in that economy and grow with it. Is that it? 
Is that all we need to know about China? I feel like I'm hearing some of you are screaming on top of your lungs, what about tariffs and trade wars? These tariffs and trade wars can halt or stop China's growth. David, even almost without let up, you've seen this drastic underperformance of Chinese stocks. Uh, you had a little bit of relief in September, but that has kind of fallen apart. If you look at the FXI ETF, pretty much the broad uh, biggest 50 Certainly stocks, in the past uh, few China weeks or months, as uh, the trade wars got heated, the Chinese stocks have had a dramatic reaction to it. As of the date of recording this podcast, MSCI China Index, which mirrors the overall Chinese stock market, shows a rough 30% decline from its all-time high level just in January of 2018. There are people that certainly believe the U.S. has the power to halt growth in China. We're at war with China. There's three, there's three types of war. The Chinese look at it. Information war, economic war, and guns up. Kinetic war. They're at, been at economic war with us for 25 years. The no great power in world history has ever looked away of their greatest threat and at the same time dissipated its energy on something. We spent $7 trillion, Brown University, the Watson Center, shown we spent $7 trillion in 17 years on this war and terror and the war in the Middle East, right, with very bad outcomes. And we've allowed the rise of China. In fact, many people in this room, the elites of our country, have exacerbated the rise of China. And we were told time and time again until Donald Trump got here that it was the inexorable rise of China. It was the second law of thermodynamics. This was a law of physics in the natural world. In fact, the whole Thucydides uh, trap concept that Kissinger these guys came up with is based on the rising power and declining power. We're the declining power. That's the same theory they had before Ronald Reagan got here in the 1970s, that Russia and the Soviet Union was on the rise and we were on decline. That was what detente was about. That was what all the arms agreements were about. Ronald Reagan changed that and said, we can defeat these guys. We can bring this down. And it was supposed to be 40 years. It happened in eight or 10 years. Same thing with Donald Trump. And he's mocked and ridiculed of not being some foreign policy expert. He's got enough understanding of the world and the way the world works to go after this. And quite frankly, we're winning. They talk about the Chinese haven't come back to us with a, uh, with a response in the trade thing. For the first time in the last 25 years, they don't know what to do. They're seeing an opponent that's standing up for themselves. If you don't recognize that voice, that was Steve Bannon, who you know as a former top-level advisor to the President Trump, who believes United States allowed China to become a superpower using unfair tactics, and it is the United States that again has the power to stop it. Extreme responses such as what Steve Bannon has to say about China, although have some merits, also attract some very extreme opposite reactions. And we know that China is moving away from previously being export-led, so it doesn't really care that much, you know, about exporting goods to uh, to America. And it's really sort of more concerned about uh, the other sides of its business. The consumer spending is one part, and of course the other one is financial services. That was the voice of the monthly full Singapore CEO. If you've been around long-term investing online communities, you probably recognize the monthly full as the company who stands by fact-based and long-term investment decision-making. Uh, I think America will blink first because I think, you know, China can, uh, China can, can survive without America to some extent. And so, uh, as far as China is concerned, uh, it is fairly self-sufficient. 
Uh, it doesn't sort of really care that much about what happens to the Chinese yuan. And uh, one option that China could have is to people the yuan, such as the CEO of the Multiple Singapore don't necessarily believe the trade and negotiations between China in the United States will have a major impact on the Chinese economy because China is moving away from dependency on other economies such as the United States. To be honest. There is no way to prove whether either of the two extreme opposites are right or wrong. Similarly, it is not easy to make a definite decision about whether either of China or United States have a winning hand in the negotiations. As usual, there is truth to some of the claims by both sides. The U.S. is right to claim that the world has been supporting China to grow and it's time to negotiate or renegotiate some of those agreements. For example, China still benefits from some of the shipping and postal rate privileges that was granted to the country a long time ago when the country was a developing nation. Does China still qualify as a developing nation? Probably not. A country that has a strategic plan to dominate the world is not a developing country anymore. Similarly, it's not all truth to say China is just taking advantage of the generosity of the rest of the world, including the United States. In reality, China has made a significant effort in progress to eliminate some of the systematic barriers they have had in the past and has tried to make it easier for other countries to access the Chinese market. Ray Dalio, founder and chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates, who has been monitoring China's progress for many years, has a noteworthy perspective. As you mentioned, I came, started coming in 1984, and I can tell you that I've watched and been part of that evolution. In 1989, I remember an organization that was put together by uh, seven companies to develop a stock market, the first stock market in China. And it was in a dingy hotel room. Uh, and these seven people uh, put together the first development of the stock market. And I've watched the uh, development of their skills, uh, their organizations, uh, the financial institutions, and it's been a pleasure because uh, that's developed in much the same way as the whole economy is developed. So there's a modernization. There's an energy here. It's in all of that development. There's been wonderful development. So I think it's important not to view it in this westernized uh, perspective of, of some of these things. It's been, anyway, very, very effective. One of the last things we need to pay attention to is that many of the deals and agreements that we now deem to be unfair were at some point negotiated between the U.S. and China and the rest of the world. I found this conversation between the host of the Free Economics Radio and Roberto Azevedo, Director General of World Trade Organization, eye-opening. I understand, I think, uh, a lot of the um, concerns that have been expressed uh, by the president and others, particularly if you don't follow the evolution of the global trading system. For example, it is um, a fair question to ask, why does my country charge 
2% when I'm importing a particular product and I want to export the same product to somebody else, I have to pay 10 or 15%. Uh, where's the fairness in this? this is, I, it's a legitimate question, I think. But it's much more complex than that. Uh, these tariffs are there because they were negotiated over 80 years. If you talk about industrial tariffs only, you're talking about more than 10,000 lines, 10,000 duties. And that's industrial only. Now, you have to add to that the agricultural side. You have to add to that uh, deals on services as well. And it's impossible to negotiate line by line. And it's also impossible to apply a different tariff to a different country. Imagine a situation when you apply the very same tariff as the others apply to you. You have 164 countries, and then you apply a different tariff for that product for 164, and then they apply the same as yours. How do you square that circle? It's absolutely impossible. <laughs> so these negotiations mm -hmm. were done on a package. So there is a balance uh, which is not mathematical, it is essentially a political balance uh, that is struck. Now, what I understand is the American position at this point in time is that we have to revise this. Uh, you know, these were bad deals. So I'm simplifying, of course, um, a very complex uh, scenario. But it's just to say that we can understand uh, the legitimacy and the perplexity of some situations. But those situations are not there by accident. Uh, they are there because there was, there's a history behind them. And this is why we got to these uh, tariffs and these commitments uh, negotiated in the WTO. In the end, I have no doubt that both parties, the United States and China, are trying to stretch the story in a way that they can justify their point of views. That's what politicians do. As usual, people pick and choose the pieces of truth that make their point of view more appealing. For me as an investor, the question changed from trying to figure out who is at fault here. Instead, I decided to understand in light of such complex relationship and negotiations that are going on, how can I make an informed investment decision? knowing that China's growth is nowhere to slow down, and some might say China is still in the early innings of the game. I mean, this country has gone through you know, a couple of world wars in the 20th century, the Great Depression, went through a civil war. I mean, we, we've had lots of ups and downs in this country, but overall, we've kept moving forward, and China will be the same. Um, I think this is a The trade war, I think, could be worked out. Trade balances... Um, I think from the Chinese perspective, American perspective, it, but it goes way beyond the trade war. You know, um, there is this uh, now um, competition, real competition for uh, in the world and supremacy. This is the first time since the 30s that we've had an emerging country that is a, a comparable power really to the United States. And there are issues there. If you don't recognize these two voices, the first one is Warren Buffett, CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. And the second guy is Ray Dalio. We've heard from him a little bit earlier in the show. Trade wars, of course, will have an impact on people's livelihoods, prices, and they may even end up into a real war, which is a risk we have to deal with. But broadly speaking, trade wars is just a reflection of the two big superpowers 
wrestling and adjusting to each other's presence and influence. These two countries, like any two other competing entities, will time to time adjust their relationship. It's a natural and expected evolution of the global superpowers. I have to say, when I started this research, I had no idea where I'm going to end up. I have quite a few investment in China, and I have sat and watched the value of my investments eroding over the past few weeks and months. When I peel the onion into the three-part questions we discussed today and answered them one by one, logically, my nerves calm down. China can still grow. Its growth is fueled by internal consumption and government's strategic plan to make the country more productive. Other long-term investors that I admire are not worried about the long-term potential and not switching gear because of the recent political and economic turmoils. But before I wrap up, there is one thing though that still bothers me, somehow at very philosophical level if you wish. The presence of the government in everything China does. For example, government of China decided to interfere in the video games publishing and approval process. The government wants to decide what people can watch and play. That has caused my investments in a company such as Tencent to suffer significantly. Despite owning 40% of the global phenomena such as Fortnite, Tencent's stock is down significantly this year. The same government that has come up with Made in China 2025 plan seems to be meddling in all aspects of people's lives. Despite everything I've learned about the future growth potential of China, it is still hard to separate my investments from my beliefs. Chinese government owns a significant portion of the Chinese economy. Is that worrisome? In America, we hate that, and we believe the road to economic success and prosperity is through privatization and the freedom of the market. The more I read about it, though, the less I agree with that statement. Of course, in the past hundred years after World War II, the U.S. model has been a winning model, allowing individuals and individual economic entities to start Their businesses and grow has been the fuel and the driver of growth of the United States economy. But does the next century have to be like that? Is that American model the one and only way of economic prosperity? Ray Dalio, who've been hearing time to time during the show, has an interesting perspective. A leader in China uh, described it as follows. He said, um, in the United States, that unit that matters the most is the individual. You are a country of individualists. You protect individual property rights in a certain way. um, And if you understand our mentality, we are a family. In other words, the word country in China, in characters, is state family. And he says, when we run the country, we think think about how you, a head of a family, would run the family. So it's very much more from a top down. It's very much more hierarchical. So the notion of um, China Inc., in other words, uh, of course, there's almost a pyramid. And they think, at the head of the family, at the head of the government, they think, I'm go- what is best for China and my Chinese companies? And so that approach, very much different from our approach, which is this bottom-up. And it redefines so many things, how we handle data, how we handle each other, and so on. 
That's a very structural, uh, important difference. It works for them. Logically, I agree with Ray. I should accept the philosophical differences between my belief system and the Chinese government. And that may be one of the hardest things a long-term investor needs to learn to separate out investments from what he or she believe as the main social and political principles. Those philosophical and political views are always evolving. And I don't believe as an investor, I need to be tied to or sort of married to one specific way of thinking and believe that's the only way that the world can grow. The last thing I want to say is that things always look worse when we are living through it. And in the hindsight, they are never as important as we once assumed. I believe the US and China will figure things out for the sake of prosperity on both sides. I also believe there is no stopping to China because of the consumption power of the people and the strategic planning of the government and their ability to execute on their plans. From everything I watched, listened, and read in the past few weeks, the future of innovation is coming from China, whether we United States like it or not. As an individual stock market investor, I'd rather be invested in China than not. Whether you agree with my point of view or not, that's not really the conclusion I'm hoping for. My only hope is that this episode has cleared some of the clouds around China for you as an investor. After all, intelligent investing is not about making the same decision as everybody else. It's about making an informed decision that makes sense to you. I'll see you next week. Our website is stockcard.io. Stockcard is a cheat sheet for long-term stock market investors. Sign up and create a free account with one click. All right, folks, that's it for this episode of Renegade Investors. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. If you had fun listening to us, give us a review. We read all of your reviews and comments. You may even get featured in the future episodes. Phew, that was a hard and long episode. Four weeks of research and reading... I never assume, guys, that I'm going to get there. But I have to say, YouTube, from NBR, Biz Report, to Fortune Magazine, CNBC Television, VOA News, CNBC International TV, Freakonomics Radio, Bloomberg TV, CNBC Television again, Bloomberg Market and Finance Channel, all of them were the sources I used to come up with this episode. I think I need to send a special thank you to all those channels for sharing their content with the world freely. Also want to thank YouTube for being this amazing source of knowledge if you know how to use it. And at the end, as usual, thanks to freesound.org. That is the source of all of our little fun sound bites. Without them, this episode would have not been possible.